Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by returning guest, fan favorite, uh, Ali Hamed, and uh, and a new guest, also at CoVenture, uh, Brian Harwit. Uh, guys, w- welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. We, we really appreciate being here. It's, it's good to be back. Yeah. So so we're here largely to talk about your, your new initiative, uh, Crossbeam, and how it fits into the broader CoVenture strategy, as well as some of the, the trends that inspired you to start it. Um, but just by way of introduction, Ali, perhaps for the people who, ha- who haven't heard some of the other episodes, you could give a, a bit of an introduction as to CoVenture, um, how CoVenture has evolved, and then we can get into Crossbeam. Yeah, so, so CoVenture is the first business I helped start. And, and CoVenture primarily identifies novel asset classes that are sort of created or, or formed by technology companies and, and ends up being the first institutional backer behind them. And that ranges from being you know, one of the first investors in perishable produce through a company called ProducePay. That you know, last year and this year will fund some ungodly amount of perishable produce. If you eat fruits and vegetables, it's almost certain that you'll have ended up um, eating some of the stuff that has gone through the facility and, and, and has been financed and, and touched produce pay in some way or another. Um, we've done things like finance um, Amazon third-party sellers. We've done things like finance, um, you know, uh, social media handles. Anything that's either an asset that's been previously unobservable, um, but because of technology, you suddenly can finance. Um, it's a big deal. Uh, it's something that we look at. Or anything that's just never been an asset before, but has some sort of predictable cash flow we finance. Um, and, and Brian and I spend, you know, a ton of our time on that. Uh, usually, you know, we'll be the first sort of twenty-five, fifty million dollar check into one of these companies, and we'll try to scale them up to hundred million dollars when it makes sense. Um, and through that, and through a lot of that technology investing, you know, people like you have become, you know, my friends and, and people in the venture community and tech community. Um, and, and at CoVenture, you know, there've been a handful of uh, equity investments made. And I realized, you know, it was time to really institutionalize it. And so I got together with a couple other folks at Molis and Fenway Summer um, and a few other sort of institutions that we had gotten to know and uh, formed a business called Crossbeam. And Crossbeam is where, you know, I do any of the equity investing. Um, and so it's a, you know, it, a lot of the themes and, and strategies that we pursue um, are in fintech, as you might imagine, or in alternative assets or alternative types of credit. Um, and especially in these sort of platform economies. And the platform economies we've gotten really obsessed with, you know, we, we always joke, you know, if you talk to somebody, if you talk to like a quote unquote boomer, they'll talk about like these new age economies. And we're like, no, that's just the economy now, you know, <laughs> sorry. Or like, and, and often we're talking to folks and, and I'm like, do you, ha- do you use, do you like still subscribe to cable? I don't even know how to use <laughs> words around cable. So I don't know if you subscribe, but do you have cable? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, great. I bet you have a home line. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, so you don't matter anymore. <laughs> that's, not, that's not really the economy anymore. And so all these like sort of stingy people and credit or these curmudgeon people are like, well, you know, Instagram's so kind of cool and novel. And they're like, no, not really. It's just sort of how you consume media. And so those are some of the spaces that we spend our time on. Brian, why don't you give an overview of, of sort of how you built the, the, the credit business at CoVenture to date and then what, what that sort of you know, means going forward? Yeah, so a lot of what Ali touched upon is what I've been focused on. Is so where is technology meet a previously unfinanceable asset? Um, and so we've done this across perishable produce. We've done this uh, across consumer loans, where you're providing sort of better forms of traditional consumer lending by observing different data points and entering sort of the consumer lifecycle at a different uh, a different place. 
um, as well as looking at newer age assets. So uh, long tail musicians and helping them finance, uh, you know, their ad spend and, and so forth based off of their streaming revenue that they're generating. And that's another thing that was not previously observable uh, prior to the digital streaming platforms proliferation. Uh, and another thing we've been spending a lot of time on is, is the financing of YouTube catalogs and other media catalogs um, for creators, which is this huge, massive portion of uh, and growing portion of, of sort of the, the economy uh, and specifically within media that there's no access to financial services thus far. So exploring different ways of, of providing access um, in, 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 uh, in those markets. And additionally, just providing debt capital uh, to these originators and, and finding ways to, to fund e-commerce and, and, and all sorts of other different uh, areas that we view as high growth with lack of access to traditional financial services. Yeah. And and so when you look at one of these sort of new asset, cl- you know, YouTube catalogs, Airbnb, yeah. you know, Spotify playlists, you know, some of the ones you, you mentioned, what is the criteria you're looking at to determine whether w- whether it's really a good bet and, and, and how much to, to put in versus you know, not to get engaged? It's too, too risky. Sure. So um, as a credit investor, we like to understand predictability um, and how much data is there to validate the thesis that the underwriter is putting forth. And so when looking at some of these assets, for example, if we want to look at uh, digital streaming for uh, master streaming revenues for, for musicians, we can look at the historical decay rate at which uh, an individual musician's albums have lost streams over time. And so you can see how predictable is it from day one that an, uh, an album is dropped to day 30 to day 60. And from there, you can start to pr- pretty predictably understand what streaming, what the streams are going to be uh, in, in six months, in 12 months, um, so long as you have enough data to prove out what that has been for the last period of time. And so we like to look at either data that exists from that particular originator who's, you know, provide, who we're providing financing to, or if there's a proxy data set that gets us comfortable understanding what that risk looks like um, in a vacuum and making sure that the originators we're working with are buying or originating assets within the buy box that that, that risk resembles. Yeah, the, the things that will add to it is what we're often looking for is something that sounds crazy novel and new. Um, but it's actually very similar to something that's pretty old school. You know, I'll give an example of a, a space that uh, we, we've been talking a lot about, and, and you may have been hearing a lot about, which is like the third party seller space on Amazon. All right. So it sounds kind of funky. Oh my gosh, what are you doing financing this marketplace of a bunch of small third party sellers? Uh, and, and when you think about it, they are small businesses, but they have three superpowers that most small businesses don't have. Um, the first is they have these compounding moats. So every time you sell something, you get ranked higher. So you sell more, so you get ranked higher. Um, you have high margins because in normal small business, you pay for real estate and in normal e-commerce, you pay for customer acquisition In Amazon, you don't pay for either. Right. So it's almost like you're in a mall, but you didn't pay for the foot traffic or the rent. Um, and the third is you have a variable cost PL. What Amazon did with AWS for compute and servers, they're doing for e-com with FBA, where they're basically taking half of what you do and making it variable, which is like a really powerful thing. So it kind of actually feels a lot like small business. You know, and then there's this sort of um, concept of like, oh my gosh, like Amazon's trying to take everyone's data and like screw with third-party sellers. Like, honestly, Jeff Bezos probably doesn't care that much about selling pickleball gear. He probably just doesn't want like AWS to get broken out of Amazon. And so I'm sure like some people sometimes at Amazon like mess that up and they probably are breaking the rules. But, like Jeff Bezos isn't saying they'd be like, oh, today I'm going to sell, like figure out the dish soap market. <laughs> and so um, basically it sounds kind of funky and different, but at the end of the day, it's just a better version of small business. And Main Street is moving to Amazon. Um, you know, it's you got a lot of social implications, but it's just the reality. Um, and, and so then what we do is we say, okay, is there an analog here to the old school world? And in that case, it's normal small business lending potentially. Does the story match the data? You know, if the analog that we're trying to compare this to has a loss rate of X, 
but the thing we're looking at is way better or way worse. Either we need to find another analog or something doesn't make sense. You know, and this is sort of like a, you know, we're not the first people to say this, but when the story doesn't match the data, trust the story. And in credit, especially, you know, we're, we're just not getting paid enough to try to like bet on a black box or some mystery. Um, and so, you know, we usually try to say, okay, if the story matches the data and the data matches some analog that we were able to compare it to, what's the base case that we can build by triangulating those two? And then come up with some loss coverage ratio on top of that of how much worse can things get from here before we lose our first dollar of income? No, no. Uh, it, it's interesting because, you know, right now there's a lot of hype because of what's happening in the world around decentralized uh, social media uh, or this idea that, you know, these platforms, uh, not just social media, but just, you know, every layer of the stack have, have, have too much power and um, can act sort of, you know, willy nilly uh, as they see fit or sort of make up rules on the fly. I guess I, I said as a sort of segue to how, how do you all think about, you know, platform risk as it relates to, you know, Amazon, Facebook, uh, et cetera? Yeah, I think I think when backing a lot of these operators, we're looking for people that have either good relations, good good relationships with the platforms themselves, have worked at the platforms themselves, or have been native on the platforms for a long enough period of time where they understand uh, where the lines are with these platforms. And I think a lot of the risk is from people who are good operators, but maybe entering spaces that they don't fully understand. And I think that's where a lot of the platform risk comes in. So we just want to make sure that the the, the operators are native uh, and understand those platforms incredibly well. And I think that each individual platform has its own risks um, and, and challenges that we look at. And I think it, 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 each underwriter is slightly different. I don't know, Ollie, if you have sort of other things to add there. Platforms range in their investability and those ranges um, are based on a handful of factors. So one factor, for example, is like, does the platform drive traffic to you or not? And in the case of Amazon, it does. In the case of Shopify, it doesn't. You know, so you don't have to, you, don't, you spend more on customer acquisition on Shopify. Does the platform monetize on your behalf or not? You know, if you talk to a lot of creators, you know, they love YouTube because it's good at monetization and Instagram has been harder on monetization. Um, and so they built big audiences there and they try to get them to come onto YouTube. Um, so like, is there programmatic behind it or do you need to sell the ads yourself? Are there compounding moats? Um, are there things like, for example, every time you have a new follower on Instagram or a new follower on Twitter, you're more likely to get the next follower because it gets easier and easier. And so like every year you're on it, you end up having a more and more valuable business. Are there network effects or power laws within your accounts? And so, you know, th those are absolutely part of the things that we're looking at. Platform risk is smaller than it used to be, in our opinion, because antitrust is real. And what these companies have to prove is that they're just the highways of the new version of small business. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I think it'd be really hard for them to take unilateral action that just like crushes a bunch of these small businesses that live on their platforms, especially when they're going in front of Congress once a year. And then finally, like that, that part of like the decentralization of these social platforms, I think that you're going to end up putting them into two buckets. There's going to be these people who are like rejecting centralization because of things like, you know, um, politics and what can you say on social and what can you not say? Um, and and the, whole, the whole parlor, you know, debate. And I do think that those are going to exist. It's probably hard to imagine that there aren't going to be more and more decentralized platforms. The other bucket is the social media platforms that are realizing they shouldn't be social media platforms at all. You know, I think what happened is, you know, people went from cable to streaming and then they went from streaming to YouTube and YouTube was the first platform to realize it's not a social media company. And if you go to YouTube, you don't really see user generated content because it turns out user generated content kind of blows. Like the average person shouldn't be able to post. They suck at it. And like, I much more enjoy the content from like professionals than I do my friends as much as I love my friends. Like I just don't really like their posts anymore because it's not what they do. And so you're starting to see the shift you know, YouTube was sort of the first, but TikTok has their fund, right? And it's like the creator fund and it's small, but it'll get bigger. And then Instagram's going to have to match that with some way to sort of compensate their creators. And I bet you in your feed, you know, Eric, I guess that's a question for you. When you're scrolling through Instagram, 
what percent of the pictures you see are from people you actually know versus meme accounts? I, uh, I actually never had an Instagram. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that was good. Um, <laughs> I guess I would ask the rhetorical question to the listener. If you're going through your Instagram account, just think about it. You know, probably half of the content you're consuming is some viral account that you share with your friends and, and you enjoy and you pass along. Like, it's not really UGC anymore. And so I think that is just the new version of media. And Snapchat and Instagram, one of our portfolio companies said this and we loved it. It's for a 15 year old, it's the new Chrome browser. Like they start there, yeah. that's the internet for them. Yeah. And, and one, one thing I'd add there is the interesting thing that TikTok brings to this whole equation is that it has allowed, the algorithm has allowed a lot of people that create content but aren't good at marketing themselves to emerge into this like creator middle class, which um, is a really interesting concept. It has allowed for more and more people to continue to pursue that who are creative and, and really good on these platforms, but didn't necessarily know how to express themselves from, from a marketing perspective and maybe who are stuck on Instagram or some of these more insulated platforms. So um, I think that TikTok is a great example of the creation of, of this middle class of creators um, through the algorithm, which has empowered a lot of following and virality that didn't exist on a lot of these other social platforms. And I also think the middle class will monetize differently than like the power, the power of like a handful of channels did. You know, so what used to happen, for example, like if you watch SportsCenter, you know, you're really lucky if your favorite team ends up being on there for six minutes. Eric, please, God, tell me you watch sport. You've you've I, watched I, SportsCenter. I, I, I've, okay. I've watched many hours of SportsCenter. Okay, yes. so like if you had to guess the best day of your life on SportsCenter, how many minutes was your favorite team covered out of 60? Uh, it's Stephen A. Smith talking about the Knicks and and, and why they, you know, he, they're finally turning it around. I, I don't know how, how many minutes, but it's uh, it's it's that moment or series of moments. Yeah, it may be seven, you know, if they won the yeah. championship and they go through all the other sports. So, you know, it's like you have an affinity towards it, but it's not like this like cult-like engagement. And so you have to rely on advertising. But when you end up like separating out into like many, many, many different cult followings, you end up having deeper engagement. And not only that, but like there's like this cultural difference of like, like I would pay ungodly amounts just to Blink-182 because like I have this like, you know, this like unhealthy like excitement about, you know, their music and the band and everything else. I would have to pay like, but I wouldn't, so I'm willing to have a pain relationship and I'm probably willing to like have a business transaction with them. That's different than I would of like TR, TRL, right? Yeah. Where like on TRL, I would see like my favorite song for three minutes, you know? And so you have to rely on advertising for the semi-engaged consumer. Whereas now that media has broken up in part because of the middle class and it's been so delineated, I bet you're going to see business models that were never possible before mainstream media. Yeah. What do you think about Lee Jin's middle class, uh, you know, creator middle class thesis? Because my instinct was, just, you know, just like everything else on the internet, it, you know, things just become increasingly hits driven, star driven. How do you see this playing out? Yeah, I and that was a, a, a really insightful, and interesting post. And the thing that we focus on most is like, how do you provide financial services? And I think that's going to be a big thing that drives the success of that middle class. And I think right now, there's just a lack of access to capital to continue to invest in your own content. So think about you know, investing in higher quality cameras and editor, things that allow you to generate content at scale that allows you to, to generate more income. Um, and I think access to capital is a real restraint and I think a constraint at the, at the current moment. And so predictability of income and then also technologies and, and technology companies coming along to provide financing based off of those predictive revenues. And so like examples of that, Ali mentioned the TikTok creator fund. Um, TikTok viewership is all over the place and, and the monetization rates on, on that fund are pretty low. 
but at least that's a programmatic revenue that you're not going and having to sell individually on each piece of content. Um, YouTube's programmatic ad exchange. That's another example. Facebook has it as well for minutes over, uh, for videos over three minutes. You, uh, Instagram is looking at it for IGTV. So once you have predictable streams of revenue where you don't have to rely on the individual selling brand deals or working directly with brands, it becomes a lot easier to provide capital. Because again, going back to the earlier point, um, you want to see predictability uh, when you're underwriting some sort of credit product. So once you have a bit more of that, I think it's much easier uh, to then provide capital in, in, in a much r- less risky way. Because I think at the moment, uh, equity capital markets are a little bit challenging. I don't know many people that are investing um, to buy shares of future revenue of, of individual creators. And, and until that market develops, I think it's largely going to be debt capital or, or debt-like capital that's coming in. Yeah, you also might start seeing more semi-financial relationships between the platforms and the creators. So, you know, I think people got a false start by trying to take music and apply it to other forms of creation. And the reason is, like, it's very hard to get a musician to be exclusive on some platform. And why is that? Well, they don't really make most of their money on streaming. They make most of their money on touring. And so they think of streaming as like an audience building exercise and then touring and merchandise and everything else is their like revenue generating um, exercise. The flip side is you can get podcasters exclusive. Why is that? Because they don't tour. It would be very awkward to see a podcaster tour. Although Eric, I would attend. (laughs) Um, And so the reason is they'd actually be more willing to probably give up some of the financial upside or the variability in exchange for more of a steady stream. And then these platforms would probably be more willing to lock them down and get exclusivity because, you know, and if you listen to any of those like bundling podcasts and like the theories of bundling and like, how do you drive audiences to a single platform? Like that will probably start to happen. And I wouldn't be surprised if like you have like a minimum wage concept or you have like a, you know, like a minimum amount that will pay you for content. And then like, we'll restructure the deal later. I don't think you have to look that far. Like look at kind of how Netflix operates, look how a lot of these streaming businesses operate and, you're going to start to see little mini versions of that happen on social. And it, I, I, by the way, I'm convinced that when I have kids one day, they'll never call social media apps, social media apps, whatever we call them in the future. Um, I bet you, you'll end up seeing like mini versions of those deals, those content deals. Yeah. You know, it's interesting if you go sort of like, you know, different vertical by vertical for different kinds of creators or, or stars. And if you ask yourself, would you rather be the sub stack of this, you know, the, mar- the true marketplace, the long, long tail? Or would you rather be like the New York Times, you know, the managed marketplace of the stars? And I bet for different sectors, you'd rather be, you know, one or the other, depending on, you know, how concentrated the the sort of star power is versus versus how how, how disparate and just the you know the economics of, of how that business works. Yeah, I don't, I don't have like a, a snappy answer to it, and I wonder if it's like the content itself like matters. Like, I don't know if like sports will be a lot different than music. Then it will be a lot different than like high ticket items, like um. You know, Nathan Tinker's, uh, God, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, like analysis on the economy and like, you know, the the, the reader that would be willing to subscribe to that. Like, I, I don't even know how much I pay for that. But like, you, I guess you just have to like subscribe. So that way, like when you're talking to your other intellectual friends, you're like, yeah, I read that too. And like, you know, here's my answer. You know, so like, I, I think a lot of it depends on the, the audience that you're trying to build and just sort of the, the LTV of that audience. Um, I, don't, I don't think it'll be a one size fits all. Although it is just unbelievable how Substack has just like wiped the floor with every blogging platform in terms of like uh, quality of product and like getting the fact that like, oh, wow, we should actually give these people the ability to create a business out of themselves. I mean, it's just like, it's just amazing that nobody else figured that that out first. Totally. Talk about why it's better in your opinion to invest at the atomic level rather than in the shares of of the company or or the stock itself. Yeah. I kind of like put that in a post that, like at one point it was like a marketing line, but I'm pretty sure we believe it. So I guess I can stand by it. 
You know, basically the, the, the way we've all, we've framed it to a bunch of folks is, you know, the investing world is a little bit confusing today. We, we hired somebody on our team this year and I said, you know, Hey, my, my only ask is you don't use this year to figure out how investing works. Cause this is just totally bizarre. And, you know, probably part of the world feels like a garbage fire where, you know, things like live events or certain parts of hospitality are just so hard. And then most of the world feels like a black box. Like, you know, I, I bet you all three of us could guess like what rents in San Francisco will be a year from now. And the only thing I know is like all three of us will be wrong. Right. So commercial real estate feels hard and is kind of black boxy. Um, and then there's like a small part of the world that everyone's like convinced themselves still matters. And so I guess that's SaaS. And I guess that's like even consumer subscription and like fang stocks. And the problem is it's such an obvious thesis that like every, everything got bit up. It, I guess everything in like reasonable hard assets, like cell towers and everything like that too. But basically the few corners of the world that are interesting got bit up. And so you can like buy Amazon shares and that's fine. But, it, it, but I don't think like, or you can try to look for a contrarian bet right now. But I think the world's so hard to find a contrarian bet that you can actually believe that I don't think we're really trying to do it. I think what we're trying to do instead is take consensus bets, but just express the bet differently. And so, you know, the, the line I think I used was don't don't go buy Amazon shares, go finance the Amazon sellers. Don't go buy Facebook stock, go buy the Instagram account. You know, don't don't go buy Google stock, go figure out how to like finance like the little ecosystems within Google. And by doing that, you end up not seeing a competing bid. You're in this economy that's just total chaos because it hasn't been institutionalized yet. And you can do things where like, you know, it's just kind of easy. It's a little bit fish in the barrel for a lot of these spaces. Yeah, I have two, two, two related questions, which is one is what, which platform or what element of a platform do you think is underutilized or underbuilt in the sense of uh, underexplored in the sense of like if you had a request for startups, uh, request for, you know, for, for innovation, where, would, where do you want to see people tinkering or, or, or building on top of? And then a related question is if you, if you could ask any platform to, to, if you could advise any platform to make it easier for people to build on top of it, you know, which one and what would you advise them? So the idea that I've kind of like talked about, and I don't really know what the expression of it would look like today is, you know, the, the sort of GE capital of the internet age. So GE capital is sort of like the financial partner of all the, like the industrial age. And like, if, it, if, if you ever sold like an expensive product to people, you'd like call on GE capital to like, you know, create liquidity and allow people to buy it on credit and like they would be your partner. And the new, um, like the new internet age is a little bit different and like the financing solutions are going to be different. But like, what if you like built like Etsy capital and ClassPass capital and um, Shopify capital, which you know, they're kind of building themselves. But there is a reason that these businesses partner with the third party. And it's because building a financing business yourself, like has all these like sort of implications, your balance sheet and your valuation and like a lot of like really tricky things and, and you have a conflict of interest with the parties that you're working with and everything else. So I do think that there's going to be a company that gets into the pipes of all these different marketplaces and ecosystems and becomes their capital partner and becomes like a massive, massive company. Um, yeah, I, I, on the feature request from platforms to creators, uh, I, I think that like the the thing that is the, the hardest to, to identify is definitely like how do you approach some of these social platforms to like run an ad campaign? And I think that there's a lot of like little ad agencies and there's some bigger ones, but I think if you were a brand right now and you're trying to approach, how do you go market on, on TikTok or, or Instagram? Like, I think you'd be pretty lost. And so um, the self-service ad platforms on those, on those products is good, but you're going to be paying more than if you go directly to some of the individual talent where you get a lower effective rate and those people get paid more when you actually pay them versus if you're going through uh, sort of their, their ad platform. So I think something that allows for an easier way of connecting between uh, influencers uh, and or sort of these creators and, and uh, advertisers. 
brands? Yeah, I think I think the the things that are obvious to ask for come with pretty deep implications. So off, you know, social, I'll give you a couple of examples, you know, of, of things that people always complain about. But it turns out that there's good reasons. Like, why can't you edit a tweet? You know, how many times have you seen someone complain about that? Well, it would probably change how tweeting worked. You know, and then also if somebody commented on your tweet and then like the tweet changed, would your comment make sense anymore? Like there's a reason, like it's not like they haven't heard the future request. You know, um, why can't you market Texas unread? Well, it'd probably turn into email, right? And and you would probably like use texting behavior differently. So then you bring that into social. Like why don't these social platforms do obvious things like benchmarking? It'd be interesting if you knew where you sat compared to other in your category and things like that. But there's probably like pretty big debates there. Um, how controllable is it to market yourself? You know, different platforms like like Instagram, like Discover is like just really hard to figure out. But I'm sure like they know that, you know, and I'm sure that there's probably pretty. And, and when it wasn't hard to figure out, people would just game it. And, you know, it would, you'd basically like have this kitchen sink of stuff that was just gamed and like people could kind of manipulate it too easily. So I guess I don't really have strong feature requests or things that I think these platforms should be doing today um, because there's probably really good counter arguments to them. And I haven't been in the room for those. But I do think that there will need to be, you know, you, you, Hunter Walk blogged about, you know, benefits or like off seasons or, or helping create like scarcity and like being okay with it. Those are probably things to Brian's point of like, you know, the, and, and Eric, the, the, the um, blog post or, or the, the write up that you reference on the creator middle class, those things will probably happen. And I bet you there's going to be a lot of learnings for the classification of W2 versus 1099 debate of Uber drivers, DoorDashers, other contractors. I think that debate will soon move on to these social platforms. Once Mark Zuckerberg stops getting like shellacked for every other step that he takes in his entire life, I'm sure that'll be like the next piece of drama that he gets like in trouble for. The poor guy. Right. Yeah. And, and something and something we talk about a lot is like the the platform's power relative to the underlying creators. And it's interesting. I think Mr. Beast is, is sort of now the guy on YouTube who's who's surpassed YouTube's like sort of fame and in Rodney, you saw he launched 300 burger restaurants and all of a sudden everything sold out and it's 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 unbelievable. And so I think um, as more and more of these creators transcend the platforms that they came up on, I think they'll start to get more and more sort of weight and, and there's more ways for them to have leverage on these platforms and actually generate some of these uh, benefits that I think Ali was alluding to. Yeah. Brian, you, you had a post around how Facebook groups are unmonetized uh, assets. Uh, unpack that. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because from an advertiser's perspective, you have a group of people that have opted in to a specific affinity and are all like-minded in, in, in that way. And so an example would be, um, you know, Boba, a Boba affinity group or a Corgi affinity group. And it's like, you know, from an advertiser's perspective, you have such a hyper-targeted market that you could advertise these people and it's so valuable, the conversions would be higher. You'd be willing to pay a pretty high rate actually to go to go and, and advertise in these in these groups. Uh, the challenge is that Facebook really likes to own the entire ad stack for their platform. And so uh, trying to run campaigns as an admin for one of these, these businesses is really, really hard. Uh, Facebook will take actions against you if you try to put, put things on the group that look like an advertisement. So um, wh what I see is there's, there's these you know, millions and millions of people that are in these groups and these affinity groups. So how can you um, get them to move platforms? Um, and you have to do it a little subtly because Facebook will, will catch you otherwise, but where, where you can plug in this user base and essentially figure out ways of either running ads, creating a more intimate setting where you have a pay per month subscription, Discord servers, things along those lines that we've seen a lot of other communities um, roll out to try to, uh, to, to build improvement there. And one of the benefits of that is once you've created predictable monetization, again, capital comes in, you can reinvest and you create positive communities 
Uh, and that's almost the beauty of the advertising thesis is like you have to have some level of brand safety. And so you can really build these positive communities that can reinvest in themselves. Um, but but as it stands, there's not a tremendous amount of monetization that can happen uh, in these groups with with all these people that are you know potentially great targets for um, you know these these ad these ad uh, ad tech ideas. Yeah, uh, uh, Ali, going back to your Amazon comment, one of the things you were saying was that um, you know it, it now makes uh, it changes it to, to variable cost uh, PLs. So, so talk about why for our audience that may not be super familiar with, with why that matters. Yeah, I mean it's. Um... You know, either you can have high fixed costs and you have to predict the future or you can have variable costs and spend money as the revenue comes in and you have some level of like tolerance for if your revenues are lower than your expenses are going to be lower compared to like if you have your fixed costs and like, gosh, you really, really better make sure you nailed revenue and predict revenue kind of way in advance. And Amazon's a tricky beast because, you know, there's seasonality. I don't think people predict the pandemic. The holiday season's hard. You know, e-commerce is just a capital, like working capital in e-commerce is just hard because you have all these inventory dynamics and it's like, you, you, you can't really run out of inventory if you're an Amazon seller and Amazon doesn't totally love that. And so, you know, I think for those businesses, that's important. And then if you think about, you know, what is the implication, how big of an implication it is that you can now start these businesses from scratch and kind of build them and make them more valuable. I don't want to say it's as big as cloud computing was, but I just want to paint a picture for you of how much this matters. Um, so right now people kind of think that Amazon third-party sellers do like 200 billion of revenue. You know, if you assume, and, and this isn't like, y- y- we've looked at a million of these and a bunch of these different originators and a lot of this stuff's public. Let's assume, you know, there's 20% margins for these businesses, which is higher than you would get for a normal e-commerce business. Um, that's probably like $40 million of EBITDA that's addressable. And then on top of that, it's probably going to double in the next five or so years. So you're talking about like an $80 billion EBITDA market. And so what do these things trade at? Well, like if a rinky-dinky crappy business trades at six, maybe they should trade at eight to 10. So let's call it 10 times because it's like the math easier. That's like $80 billion of market cap. The other really fascinating thing is Amazon's gonna not going to let one company get that big, right? Because then they stop being third-party sellers and like they can't be a highway for small business. Um, so you could probably have either 40 $20 billion companies. And that's pretty good. Or 400 $2 billion companies. You, you, know, you could have a lot of unicorn businesses here. And so we think it's just like this like explosion of opportunity. The thing that I love, you know, there's two things that have really helped us tremendously. The first is, you know, once a month, there's some writer who writes this horrible blog or not horrible, a, a very actually well done post about how hard it is to be an Amazon seller and like all these nightmare stories that you hear. And, you know, the, the, the platform risk on Amazon is probably less than the scaffolding risk of New York City. Like you're more likely to have like scaffolding put above, above your store than you are like randomly because some degenerate like Amazon employee did something wrong, get kicked off Amazon. And, and then uh, the second is like VCs are like, well, you know, is this a venture deal? Where's the software? And isn't this capital intensive? I don't know. It probably would have been good to see Thrasio. You know, if that's not venture capital, I don't need to be a venture capitalist. So, um, you know, the, the, the definition of me and venture capital is things with equity efficient um, components. You know, I don't think capital efficient. A lot of what we do are sort of quote unquote fat startups. So they require a lot of capital, but not a lot of equity. And you can get a high multiple on return relative to the risk. And then you have, you know, sort of an, an enduring business that uh, has high moats. And the businesses that you buy or roll up on these Amazon sellers have moats themselves because of the comment review moats. You know, th- th- those are, you know, in terms of like the importance of what happened by making the cost of starting these e-commerce businesses variable, like it is an $800 billion implication. Yeah. 
and and going from the 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 business side or the other side of the table you remember uh, you guys are of course big investors in, in clearbank and we did an episode with with you and clearbank that was really great how, how do you think about from the founder perspective or, or operator perspective the uh, how should they think about whether to take equity or whether to take on you know other uh, other other forms you know you should take equity when you're taking capital to do something that's risky and and now i'm going to steal lines from andrew uh, one of the founder one of the two founder one of the founders of clearbank and and someone who we work really really closely with and and i've learned a million things from so i feel really proud to be able to rip off a lot of his ideas here um, you know you should you should use equity to either take make technical risk uh, or to take you know, business model risk or to do things that are high risk. And as he says, like, you shouldn't use equity capital and dilute yourself to like decide if you spend one more dollar on Facebook ads or Google ads, what's this going to do to your business. Um, and you should definitely take debt capital when you know that if you put in a dollar of debt capital, it is very likely to create more than a dollar of cash flow. If you're uncertain of that, you are going to be generally in trouble and you're adding undue risk to your business and your business is probably risky enough. But if you have a level of certainty of that, then raising equity is sort of an irrational thing to do. So then it comes down to like, what is the cost of debt compared to the cost of equity? And you start going to conversations like ROE, uh, return on equity. And if you're a startup company, you are probably a failed business if the dollars that you put into your equity return a 15, 20, 30, 40%. Um, you are supposed to return 100% year over year or something like that, right? Because if the venture portfolio is supposed to create a 30% year, year over year return and some of the businesses work out or some of them don't, like getting to like, a, if you looked at a venture portfolio, you know, you, you'd be successful if you had a 30% IRR or something like that. So it means the winners had something like 100%. It is so obvious that you should take debt capital in any circumstance where, where, where if you are pretty sure you can use the dollar to create more than a dollar and you can borrow under 100% interest rate. <laughs> now, that, that is sort of like a, I'm obviously biased and, and, and you know, we're, we're selling sort of uh, our product a bit, but that is how you, how you think about it. The only caveat is if you don't have much opportunity. Because if you only have $100 worth of opportunity and you already have $100 of equity, you should just use your equity. Why not? Why take debt and like give half of the profits to the debt if the rest of your equity cash will sit idle because you don't know what to do with it? But if you ask an entrepreneur of most startups, they will not say that they have an infinite amount of cash sitting on the sidelines, save like Slack when they used to raise those like mega rounds um, back in the day. And they're just like, I don't know, it's like irrational not to take the money. Save those rare cases. So long as you don't have idle equity cash that you have nothing to do with, you should probably always raise debt so long as you know that a dollar of cash flow will come back from it. Yeah, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you guys published a post on, on, on roll-ups. T- talk about why you're so excited about, about, about roll-ups. So roll-ups today are less, you know, roll-ups are usually considered private equity deals, right? So some private equity fund puts up like, you know, some crazy number, like 100, 250 million dollars or whatever. And then they borrow money that maybe they borrow 300 or $400 million. And it's a really capital intensive thing that it really is meant for private equity. And you're also financing businesses that have some general product market fit. You know, you're buying dentist offices or you're buying, you know, I don't know, businesses that like are, no one's wondering if they should exist anymore. But what's changed here is when a lot of these new platform economies invent new small businesses, capital really hasn't come into the space yet, just simply because of the newness. And in fact, cost of capital on the debt side is going to be reasonably expensive because cost of capital comes down for two reasons. The first is size. You know, you need to have enough debt capital out there. I promise I'm going to get to your question. You need to have enough debt capital out there for big players to come in with big balance sheets and a low cost of capital. And the second is you need time. You know, people, just because you suddenly need a trillion dollars doesn't mean someone's going to give you a trillion dollars at a low rate. They want to see a track record. 
or a billion dollars, you know, whatever you want it to be. So um, you need both size and time. Until then, you end up having expensive capital. If you have expensive debt capital, you have to purchase assets at pretty low multiples because if you're borrowing at 20%, for example, and you buy something at six times, you can't even make your 20% interest payments. So there's this compression of, um, of multiples. So then if you're the debt, you can actually lever things more highly than you can in traditional rollups like private equity rollups. So in a normal private equity deal, you might see something like a 70% advance rate. So basically 70% lever debt compared to equity and the asset was purchased at six times. That's something like a 4.2 times debt to income, right? You basically have, you know, for every $4.2 of debt, you have a dollar of income that pays you back. If you're buying something at three times and you would give 90% leverage to it, it's a 2.7 debt to income. As a creditor, that's amazing. I basically have more income relative to my debt outstanding, even though I added more leverage. So let's go back to the venture capital part. For the first time, you can actually fund a venture capital deal with venture capital dollars because it's not that capital intensive because you could take out more leverage on a relative basis than you can in a normal roll-up. Therefore, it takes less equity capital and you go right back to having an equity efficient business that gets you equity-like returns that you need for a venture capital deal. That is a new dynamic that hasn't existed before. And the newness of these assets means the debt is still really expensive, which means the multiples are still really low, which means the leverage can be more extensive, requiring less equity. And, and I think on top of that, uh, most of these rollups that we're excited about are on these platforms, which are technology enabled, are, are sort of new to have these businesses that are big enough to be considered rollup targets. Um, and there are technology tools and integrations and things you can build proprietarily that allow you to do it more efficiently. And a lot of these platform businesses don't require the same level of overhead for all these points about variable costs that some of these other rollups did, which made them much riskier because you're, you're, you're levered uh, and you have a high fixed cost, which is sort of a recipe for disaster if things are to turn at all. Yeah. Uh, Ali, every, every time you, you come on, we, we talk about how, how a venture is evolving and, and how it's evolving. And, and you have some, some thoughts around just contextualizing, you know, what kind of risk VCs used to take. Um, and then also just uh, sort of making sense of, how, you know, how we should perceive how valuations have, have changed. Why do you unpack uh, both of those ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of like simple points, which is valuations being higher today than before are is not a surprise and probably should have happened. Why? Because, you know, today the internet, it turns out is bigger and it turns out that there's not as much technology risk or business model risk as there used to be. It used to be that you had a smaller market with tech risk, business model risk, and most of the founders who are starting companies were first-time founders. Now you have a bigger internet, not a lot of technology risk, and most of the, you know, firms like Locks and Coastal and Founders Fund still do that, whatever, they should get paid for it, but most companies don't. Everyone's a SaaS company, or at least pretends they're a SaaS company now, so there's not a lot of different business models. And, and also everyone realized that like, it's a lot easier to sell something if you sell it on credit than if you, or on a subscription than if you like try to sell it on one bulk transaction. So like the affirm of everything. And, and then finally, like probably half the founders we back have like built and sold a company before, simply by the fact that startups have been around longer. So there's more exited founders so maybe there's less team risk. We still back new founders, but on balance, there's more second time founders than before. So valuations probably should have gone up. There are certain things where there, there are stocks that kind of confuse people because they're like religious stocks. It's like Tesla, like I don't have a point of view. And I don't really want to argue with anyone about Tesla because I'm exhausted about hearing about it. The uh, and and I don't know whatever my opinion is, I just know it's wrong. But but so like people just spend all their time talking about these like crazy outliers. And and the problem with outliers is like people then take the rules from outliers and apply them to the general pool. And like that's not a very useful exercise. 
I think that what ha- was happening is like the internet was winning and now it's won. And what's more confusing to me is not like these overpriced tech stocks that are like on the precipice of like modern day monopolies. Or, or gosh, I, maybe should I rein that word back, but whatever. What confuses me more is like the stocks that aren't tanking. So like, you know, for New Year's Eve, uh, Keelan and I rented a car to go upstate and we were at um, Dollar Rent-A-Car. Is that what it's called? It was like one of the only cars left in New York. So we went to this rental place in Queens and we sat in line for like 45 minutes. Well, there's like poor individuals like arguing with the person behind the counter about why their credit card wasn't working. We couldn't get a silver car because, you know, silver cars are out at that point. And I'm looking at the stock while I'm in line, just being like, this has got to be going bankrupt in- imminently. And it wasn't. You know, it wasn't. So I still think there's still so much value, like, and, and it, you know, eventually, well, there's still so much value coming out of these businesses that have just gotten crushed and they just have no hope of surviving and will still move to these technology companies. The technology companies have probably gotten ahead of themselves. But, um, you know, if you're building a DCF model, like it's really hard to divide by zero, you know, and, and, and humans are still bad at doing linear math. And the thing that I like, I've actually been thinking more and more about is remember in 2015, when like all these like mega rounds were new to us, like if someone did a hundred million dollar round and a billion dollar valuation, like, whoa. And then we all later were surprised when there were like decacorns, right? We were all surprised like, oh my God, now 10, there's only 10 billion dollar companies. Well, when these companies were getting printed at 2 billion, it's obviously because people thought they were one day going to be worth six. They weren't investing at two because they thought they were going to be worth two forever. But we were all surprised when suddenly there were a bunch of $10 billion companies. So let's take that one step forward. There are so many $10 billion companies. No one's buying a $10 billion company thinking it's going to stay at 10. Think about how many $30 billion companies are. If you're buying Amazon stock, you're not buying it because you think it's going to stay at one and a half trillion. You think it's going to four. What a crazy concept. So I think, you know, the thing, it doesn't surprise me at all that valuations have gone higher in seed or series A, and they probably should have because we're in a better investing environment and people are desperate and interest rates are low as so the end of capital and risky stuff. But I think the more fun exercise is like, what are the term sheet and pro rata posts that we're going to be like, oh my gosh, you know, like three years from now, I think they're going to be pretty incredible. Yeah. You had a blog post a couple of years ago that was, the concept was, uh, the title was, what will the, you know, investors in 2040 wish they, you know, had known in, in 2019. And so I'm curious to ask, you know, similar question, but for, for 2021 edition, beyond some of the things we, we, we've spoken about uh, today. Gosh, I think you're one of the three people who reads my blog. It's like my mom, my dad, and you. This is amazing. Yeah, I started getting yeah, my fiance around. I'm like, Eric reads my blog. Now you have to. I don't know. I think it's media, Brian. I don't know about you, but like the idea that people still watch CNN and Fox like blows me away. Um, and so I just think like if you if you knew what happened in the streaming wars was about to happen in the social wars, how would you invest in it? That to me feels like the most compelling thing. And the other one is like this Amazon stuff. It, it blows me. I'm on a podcast and I, and I feel totally fine telling everyone about it because I just know that nobody's going to get out of their seat and do it because they're going to get in their own way. So I think those are the two to me that I'm just like, obviously the next Disney is going to be built on social Instagram, uh, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, et cetera. And obviously every little business that it used to exist on the side of the road is now going to exist on Amazon. Yeah. The, the ownership of attention is going to look a lot different in, in 20 years for sure. And I think I'll hit on it well. So nothing more to add there. Is there anything else out of like how you see the streaming wars turning into the social wars? Like how, how is that going to play out or, or what implications does, does that have? It probably means that these social media companies will have to get capital intensive over time and start spending money on content. And then by spending money on content, you know, you can probably fund that content with some predictability. Like a lot of people have like these little funds that do like microfilms now that they know like Amazon and Netflix and stuff will bid on. Soon you're going to start seeing more of that stuff, but they're going to be like two minute clips as opposed to like two hour 
video, like movies that, um, you know, cost like some amount to produce. And so I bet you, you're going to start seeing like, and then the other thing that technology has enabled is small financings. So it used to be that like, it was very hard to, to do a $50,000 financing of something because you only make 60, you know, $60,000 back, $10,000 of income. If you're paying anybody who like makes a hundred thousand dollars a year, you know, at most they can spend two weeks underwriting the viability. Like you couldn't do it. Technology and uh, allows you to automate the underwriting of content. And I bet you the investing in content will be a lot more automated. You know, it'll be sort of like very data driven of, you know, it turns out that people in New Jersey like this type of content and they end up being on TikTok at this time. And based on that, like this content's gonna have X, Y, and Z. And this person has this many followers. And so we know that we can price it at X price. Like that is the future of funding content. And so and stuff like and that. We, and we, and we saw it, like as soon as people thought TikTok was going away, uh, there were a handful of land grabs from these other platforms like Triller and, and they were trying to, you know, in real, they're trying to get talent and they were willing to pay up um, in, in certain instances. And so the TikTok creator fund, we think is sort of that first domino. It's like, all right, you platforms have to pay. We're, you know, the users are generating a lot of the attention on these platforms and Instagram hasn't really been sharing it with its creators. So I think that's going to change. Uh, and like Ollie said, that's going to be much more intensive. And I think that's going to hit the margins of these businesses. And, and it's going to be a content cost in the same way that, that some of these traditional media companies were, I'd love Netflix in there too, um, have, have had. Yeah. Uh, let, let's say we're, we're, we're in 2025 or even 2030, and we're reflecting on how, you know, venture has changed in the, in the last you know, five to 10 years. Do you think that rolling funds were a huge game changer in terms of, you know, hundreds and thousands of more fund managers and, and just, you know, the cap table becoming way bigger and, and decentralized? Or what would you predict to that, that, that would be very different? Or what would we be surprised by? I think it's like a, I think it's a big deal, these rolling funds, but I don't think it's a thing that in like 2030, we're going to be looking back and like, wow, that was like the thing of 2021 that mattered. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't think there's like many super angels anymore right now. Like it used to be that like, you know, Chris Dixon and Reed Hoffman and like a handful of these other folks would like write hundred K checks into like 20 companies a year, however many they did. And, um, you know, and then they were like the angel investors and it would kind of succeed fund. And I just think it's a replacement of that. And if those rolling funds didn't exist and weren't part of the ecosystem, like we'd probably have a dearth and then you'd have like people doing micro funds, which would be harder. I also do think they're a, re a reaction to like the equity value of a person. Like Eric Tornberg, the brand is pretty valuable. Like it in itself as a business, I bet you if you did a rolling fund, you'd like have the money in about a minute. Instead, like you have to like secretly email people that you've vetted as qualified purchasers, like once every once in a while. And you can't tell people you're doing it because otherwise there'll be solicitation. Like, you know, this quiet marketing period, like, you know, I get why that's easier and I get why it's better for the manager. I wonder a little bit on the reporting side, like we'll start to be annoyed, you know, if they like don't really understand the capital base that back them and how many people are going to have information about their business and stuff like that. But I just look at it as like the next version. We, we went from super angel to micro funds. And now we're going from micro funds to rolling funds. I think it's important. I don't think it's like, I just think it's an exploration. I don't think it like changed venture capital. Yeah. Do you, um, you know, we did an episode with Tonio a couple of years ago about ISAs. And I think one of your concerns about ISAs or critiques of why they wouldn't sort of like, you know, be game changing was that you're taking, you know, uh, debt-like returns for, for equity like risk for debt-like returns. Has, has it sort of played out that way? Like what, what is your status on ISAs sort of similar to where it was a couple of years ago or how has that evolved? So when we look at um, credit, we're looking for and statements, not or statements. So for example, like if this and this happens, then we lose money. In ISAs, it's if this or this happens, we lose money. So it's compounding risks, not mitigating risks. And the compounding risks today are if the person isn't a good credit, or if the school they went to isn't good, or 
if the job market isn't good or if they're not good at their job and they get laid off or if they go to a country where we don't know how to service the debt compounded with unproven precedent of what happens the first time this stuff gets disputed and you're getting paid like low double digits. I can do hard money lending at nine. Like I can lend it a 60% LTV against some like building in some place and like know that I can secure my collateral for 200 basis points less and the same tax treatment. It doesn't make sense to me why I would take a 200 basis points premium for a lot more risk than that. That's still where I stand. That, that makes a lot of sense. The, um, in, in addition to like generally social risks of how yeah. these people feel and making sure that they're told the right things and they actually know what they've taken. Yeah. More broadly, something you think a lot about is 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 cost of capital in 2021. You know, in January in January 2021, how should people be thinking about how should we be thinking about cost of capital and how do you expect that to evolve in the short short to medium term? Brian can give a bit of the micro in a moment of the things that we've seen. I think the the general way we think of investing when things are confusing is you know when 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 it's a good time to invest, you want lots of diversification, and you just want beta, right? Because like basically everything will be fine. And when things are hard, like they are right now, you want a bit more concentration because you want to pick your spots. And because you're picking your spots, there's less opportunity. And weirdly, even though like intuitively you'd say, wow, we're in a riskier environment, so I should get a higher price for my stuff. There's actually less selection of things that you'd actually want. And so we would say like pay up for the few spots that you actually want to be in. And so counterintuitively, cost of capital has gone down right recently, partly because of interest rates, partly because there's just such a flood of money. So it's not like there's like, it's not like everyone's illiquid right now. So it's not like we're the only ones in the room looking to deploy capital. So in lieu of the fact that we are not in a, play, a time of scarce capital, but we are in a time of scarce opportunity, I actually think cost of capital has gone down and we would pay more for the best spots. And you need that, Pepper? Yeah, no, I think, I, I think that's right. I think what we've seen is uh, more people, especially of, as sort of the, 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 keep, the well-kept secret of private credit uh, and the returns that it's generated over the last you know, 20 years, people have realized that this is an attractive place to put your money. So I think fundraising ha- has definitely gone up. And, and sort of because of that, the, the opportunities to get that yield have come down because people are bidding lower and lower on these different assets. And so um, it, it, it is definitely put some downward pressure on the cost of capital um, for, for a lot of these businesses. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of tourists come into the space because, you know, you have these groups that used to be able to make money on high yield or you, you have these groups that have certain liabilities. And in fact, maybe their liabilities even went up this year and they realize that they can't get to the return hurdles that they need in normal markets. Like if American Airlines is issuing bonds at like five and a half percent during a pandemic where you can't really travel, I don't know, you know, that's sort of tricky. And you're basically taking a bet that the government's gonna be like subsidize you or like be your implied insurance backstop. I think it's pushed people into more niche spaces. And so I think when we're looking at deals right now, there's less stuff we like because the world's such a black box and there's probably more people going after it, um, which has forced us to try to stay, you know, ahead of the curve, but, you know, pushes us and it's, uh, we're, we're still, we're still making our rent. And, and Ali was, was mentioning this before, but these like platforms that have made it scalable to, to do some of these private securitization type models. Um, so you, you look at like the finitives and cadences of the world and you have yield street, which is on the larger end of it, but this is providing access uh, to, you know, there's still accredited investors, but more retail, uh, investors into this private credit space. And so you're seeing some of that come in, uh, which is offering new funding uh, to earlier and smaller stage businesses than we typically have access to it, which is a positive thing, but definitely brings in pricing pressure um, for, for from a cost of capital perspective. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if this has taught me anything also, it's one, it's taught me the, the power of um, how long it takes 
for bid asks to come in. So like, for example, like we are not seeing a bunch of like hotel operators selling distress right now because they're going to their lenders and saying, you want it? Come take it. <laughs> what are you going to do with the hotel? You know, your best bet is just to like relieve the loan. And, you know, so I think spaces like that, like there hasn't been a big collapse. And I don't think like Brian and I are waking up every day seeing like these incredible deals coming onto our lap. We're like, just because we have capital and we have time, we can go scoop them up. And then also people are willing to pay a premium right now for not taking correlated risk. So you'll still you'll see things right now like music royalties get bid up. And you know, I think in Q4 there was a handful of things like um, you know, one concerns around tax rates going up uh, in 2021, which was forcing sellers. And two, you know, you had groups that were buying these music royalties at 15, 16, 18 times revenue, um, which I always thought was crazy. If, if you think about what that means, think about how much the music business model has changed from now till 18 years from uh, before. You know, you're you're basically like predicting like at least 10 to 15 years in the future. And it's and I get the trade. You know, it's an uncorrelated asset. There's a lot of data behind it. It's an income stream and people really need yield compared to a lot of stuff that's out there. It's probably actually a rational trade. But that's how much people are willing to pay for uncorrelated risk. And when I talk about like the crowding of the few areas that exist in the world, like cost of capital in music royalties has gone down because it is one of the places you can crowd into. You know, one of the places that we spend a lot of time looking at and haven't pulled the trigger on is like these collectibles or like fractional ownership sites like Rally or like Otis, you know, or some of these others. You know, I think one of the things that we're still trying to figure out is one, you know, I think we've decided we're better at underwriting things with cash flows. Like if I give a dollar to this thing, the in, like the value of the thing will be over a dollar because it'll produce cash flows that are more than a dollar. Please don't tell, tell my Bitcoin friends about this. Um, and then, uh, but like something like art, it's just like, it's not intuitive to us or cars, it's not intuitive to us, but there are good investors who do it. But what we are seeing is so many people who had assets now have more assets. I mean, the saddest thing about 2020, it was like just created more socio socioeconomic divide. It was probably the best year ever for rich people. And, and, and even for high net worth people who wouldn't otherwise have put 25, 50, $100,000 into these collectibles for the first time could. You know, it probably had something to do with why crypto is ripping sort of towards the back half of the year. Um, and it's probably why a lot of these alternative asset companies have started seeing a lot of inflows. The question is going to be, was this the catalytic mo cat catalytic moment that allowed them to grow and become huge, or was it the false start? Like we don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a good place to uh, a good question to, to to wrap on, guys. It's been a, a fascinating episode. My guests have been uh, Ali Hamed and Brian Harwit of, of CoVenture uh, announcing, uh, and also and Crossbeam. Uh, the, uh, congrats on the launch. Uh, thank you both for 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 coming on the podcast. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.